welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? I'm on the edge of my seat. Oh my. Because the St. Louis Blues are playing game one of round one of their uh, playoffs uh, series against the Chicago Blackhawks. And uh, it has now become the longest game in St. Louis Blues history. Mm-hmm. They're just entering a third overtime as we speak. Mm-hmm. Um or are they about to? Maybe they, I think they've just ended the second overtime. I'm, I'm sort of I'm following on Twitter. All right, it's, Twitter is is great for everything. It's uh, it's completely changed the way that I live my life and relate to everything I relate to. Let me okay. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, this is a, a fun question. What causes you to unfollow somebody on Twitter? Like, do you, is that a thing you do very often? Very rarely. Okay. And it's usually not like, oh, I can't believe that person said it. It's not something that pissed me off. It's usually if a person is tweeting a lot and they are things that are not interesting to me, you know? Okay. If it's like if I follow someone who, um, like, you know, I, I maybe, I mean, you know, I guess people have their own thresholds. People might have unfollowed me because I tweet links to the stuff on our site. But I only do that maybe a half dozen times a day at most at most i mean um, sometimes once or twice a day like yeah so but sometimes there that's probably been the number one thing that i've unfollowed a person for is if they were just constantly tweeting links to other things as opposed to like actual twitter content if, yeah. if it's just always links um i will unfollow because i feel like it's clogging up my feed and i only you know i'm a busy guy i work i only have a few breaks you know where yeah. i can uh, look at my phone for a few minutes and if i'm scro- you know i'm wasting time if i'm scrolling past 20 links to articles that i'm not going to click on so that's that's pretty much the only reason i've ever unfollowed someone yeah uh <clears throat> i'm the idea of something clogging the feed is uh is a big thing for me and uh we have you and i have friends that we both that i believe we both follow who tweet a lot and sometimes and those are friends, so I'm not going to unfollow them. But there are times I'm like, oh, geez, this is it's like this person has a lot has had a lot of short thoughts in a row. Uh, but, you know, if you follow a number of like I've had to unfollow a number of uh, like political commentators or just political websites that will certainly they'll do like, hey, here's some articles. I'm like, right. oh, OK, that's fine. But then someone will like live tweet a press conference. It's like, ah. I'm not watching the press conference, <laughs> so I'm going to unfollow you for the next hour and a half, and then I'll be right back. Yeah. So I feel bad about that because it's like I, I probably want to know what he, this person has to say, but just come on. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I agree. Um, it's a little warm in here, by the way. It is? Oh, okay. <laughs> Turn the air on. Okay. Well, you you set up the top of the show discussion. I will, yeah, I will vamp a little bit. Um, this is a bit uh, difficult to bring up a serious... Uh, serious topic um because i'm (laughs) you know following a hockey game on twitter while i talk about it but um the day of recording is i think only uh just yesterday um is when allegations were made about um brian singer and um his uh behavior alleged behavior in the the late 90s with uh, an underaged person uh and what I don't want to do is talk about the details. Uh, you know, I don't want to get into the seediness of it because I, I, I did read about as much of that as I could stand. 
today, um, and it didn't. It, it it's very uh, unseemly and unfortunate, and it's not the kind of thing we talk about here. Um, so I will leave that at. Um, if these things are true, I hope that um, there is uh, a reckoning of sorts for Brian Singer's behavior. But what I really wanted to talk about, uh, and I can get there now because Tyler's back, is... You get it all sorted out? Uh, yeah. Did you solve the mystery? Yes. Um, so now we're moving on. Oh, okay. Let's get into it. No. Um, <laughs> no, what I really wanted to talk about is uh, this happening right before X-Men Days of Future Past. Yes. Um, when does that... That comes out sometime... Sometime in soon. May. Sometime in May. So very soon. Uh, and how that might affect uh people's i don't know you know we're not a podcast that talks about box office i'm not really concerned about that but i mean will people will people be less likely to see it or will they even upon seeing it view it differently um given these allegations and we did a whole episode way way back yeah i don't know if it's available anymore um on separating the art from the artist because it's something that i am almost it's like a philosophy of mine that i uh, that I do, and I will. I will defend that. You know, uh, you know the Woody Allen thing. I, mm-hmm. um, if the allegations against him are true, it's uh, disgusting. And if I were an actor, mm-hmm. I would probably not be as keen to work with Woody Allen as a lot of actors seem to be. Sure, possibly because of it. But I'm not an actor. I don't have to work with him. I just watch the films mm-hmm. that, which exist as objects apart from what he did. Uh, and I believe very strongly in that approach. That said, if I could stop one young person from being molested, I would give back the experience of every Woody Allen movie I've ever seen. Uh, I could Woody Allen movies could never exist at all if it would stop one person from being hurt. Have you ever seen Hannah and her sisters? <laughs> it's pretty good. It's pretty good. <laughs> but I'm not willing to sacrifice. I mean, right? Yeah. No. Absolutely. We always talk about. Uh, uh, Richard Donner in the commentary for The Omen, because we love it's, to talk about The Omen uh, for some reason. Especially that commentary. It's a great, like, him and Stuart Baird, it's a great commentary. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. Is is The Omen the most talked about movie that we don't actually really like on this podcast? Because we bring it up a lot. Uh, uh, yeah, I'd say, probably, Because yes. it is a conundrum, because there are lots of things about that movie that I do like. Yeah. It just doesn't hang together that well. Hang? Yes. It's all for uh, you. It's all for you. That's, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That's one of my favorite things that has happened in a movie ever. Mm-hmm. The it's all for you, Damien uh, scene. That's horrifyingly creepy and disturbing. And it happens um, early enough in the film that yeah. it's all downhill from there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, there's the part where spoilers for The Omen, the... Um, I guess it's the mom. Is that who it is? Who falls off the balcony? I believe so. Yes. And there's a shot. Uh, she falls through the balcony. Uh, it's an indoor sort of like I don't know what you call that. Um, it's like a walkway. The stairs and there's a walkway to the bedroom. Yeah, it's not a balcony strictly. So speaking. yeah, I don't it's know a what walkway you call over like the foyer. Yeah, oh, is it like a sort of like a mezzanine? Not I really. Guess it's kind of like a mezzanine, but it's just a hallway that's outside that yeah. overlooks the foyer. I don't know what you call that. Anyway, she falls through and she knocks a goldfish bowl off the table and it falls with her and so it's a slow motion shot from above of her falling and landing on the ground in the goldfish bowl shattering yeah and um richard donner points out that the it, they're fake goldfish in that shot yeah uh because he 
didn't think his movie was worth the life of a goldfish. Yeah. Uh, Which that movie certainly is not. Um, <laughs> uh, and, but yeah, uh, that's, a, I, I like that attitude. Yeah. And, uh, that, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I would, I would give back if I could not even save a person's life. If I could save a person from being, uh, abused, mm-hmm. um, I would, I would give back any number of movies. Right. Um, so back to, so that's how I feel about Woody Allen, and that's how I feel about Mel Gibson, whom, whose films I have unabashedly talked about how sure. much I love. Roman, I have, Roman Polanski is another one. Uh, yeah. I mean, I had, didn't like, uh, what was that one? The Ghost Rider. No, I didn't see it. Wait, he made something since then? Or is that the most recent? I think that's the most recent. I don't know why I feel like there's something else that I'm missing. Anyway, um, but he's got the new one now. Mm-hmm. Um, Venus and Furs, is that... I don't remember. All right. Anyway. I'm not following people's careers, all right? Yeah, apparently. Did I I see it yesterday? If not, I don't know. Is Um, it coming out this summer? Because we'll get to it next week. Oh, yeah. That's going to be fun. That's going to be fun. So uh, I want to get your opinion on Brian Singer. Um, Well, do you you like the films of Brian Singer? Uh, By and large, yes. And... What's strange is, yeah, I think I think he has uh, a certain eye for, um, I would say, suspenseful iconography. Um, I think he has an idea of what can have a very iconic look. Um, for example, I mean, when I think of The Usual Suspects, one of the things I think is a shadowy character in a fedora and trench coat who's basically silhouetted. Like, he's just, he's... He's meant to be uh, a shadow of a character, and he is visually represented that way constantly. Mm-hmm. And um, so stuff like that, and then just the iconic image of like the the usual suspects standing there, making their jokes and all, all that, and just uh, and then at the end when it is revealed like who Kaiser Soze is, I feel Spoilers. like Spoilers. Yeah, well, I'm not saying I'm not saying who it is. It's it's okay to say who. Kaiser yeah, I know, is. but um. But I don't need to in this case. Like okay. the way they represent that visually, and just gradually over, over uh, the you know this shot, and then a reaction shot, and then a, a realization shot. Like he's just, I don't know. I think he's, I think he's a pretty solid director. I'm not sure if I'd say I love him. I didn't. Uh, I think the last thing of his I saw. Oh no, I saw Superman Returns. I didn't. But there's a, but there's a movie that spe- he he's a he's a guy who speaks very very much in iconography, whether you like it or not. Um, and so, um, so yeah, I think he's a good director. I'm excited for days of future past. Um, I think it sounds like it could be a mess, but that's not what we're talking. Oh, it's, it is a mess. The story is a, is a mess. And I think by trying, I think it's, my hope is that it's the X-Men movie to end all X-Men movies, because I think it's, I'm not one to argue for a reboot, but man, oh man, the first X-Men movie came out 14 years ago. Yeah. Couldn't have been more excited for that. Couldn't have been more excited for the sequel. After Last Stand, I'm like, okay, well, all right. <laughs> and then it just yeah. diminishing returns. Um, so you didn't see Valkyrie? Oh, I did. That's right. I, I always forget that one because I know it was on the shelf for a while. And neither one of us saw Jack the Giant Slayer. No. Which I heard um, was uh, not bad. Okay. But yeah, he's a slayer that's a giant, right? That's, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I would like the movie better if it was called Jack the Giant Slayer Fan. And it was just about a guy who was really into Slayer. His name's Jack. Um, man, now that's funnier. Did I get on that? Um, 
but yeah, uh, I'm going to see the movie either way. If it turns out that these allegations are true, then obviously that is an unfortunate, terrible, th- monstrous thing, one could say. Um, here's a concern that I have, oddly enough. If people are following this case, and I, I never know, you and I are so insulated, I think, in Hollywood and just doing what we do. I have no idea what stories will or will not get leaked out to the public. Woody Allen was like a very public figure, as was his wife at the time, Mia Farrow. And so what you know, what he did, specifically what he did like with, with Soon Yi, like that was the public thing that really right. got people paying attention to him because everybody involved was a public figure. Uh, Brian Singer is not, he's not an Oscar winning director. He's, you know, I don't think he's a name by any stretch. And to, and though the, the kid that he allegedly, uh, did some stuff to, uh, he was straight. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. I'm, you know, um, that's what I, I read the legal brief. That's the accusation. He's doing some stuff. He did did some stuff. Allegedly. Your honor. He did some stuff to this kid. Um, (laughs) we shouldn't make light. No, but it's, it's just, it's, it's pretty awful. It's, if anything can be made light of, it's, it's speaking in euphemisms, which I, I like to right. do. But, um, my concern, and, uh, this is going to sound strange. Okay. So a lot of people, okay. So, uh, Brian Singer is gay. All right. Right. Okay. A lot of people have an opinion of gay people, gay men specifically, huh. that they, are a that like like you know pedophiles or child molesters like oh that they they, yeah. they might like there's people link the two um yeah there are a number of uh my my fiance used to work at a, a place that catered to homeless youths mm-hmm. um and it's uh a sickeningly common not i mean not that it happens constantly but you'd think it'd be more uncommon but uh basically teenagers coming out to their parents and then essentially being kicked out of the house because the parents are afraid they're going to molest their younger siblings. Okay. And that's, and that's the thing that happens enough that. Right. And so that is the fact that it's happened more than once is shocking. It's a step in the wrong direction. I would say. Um, so anyway, okay. So there is that stereotype that I would say is, is unfounded. Uh, that's, I guess that's me speaking in euphemisms again. Um, but what do you got there? Blues win. Hey, all right. Oh, Alexander Steen. Now I can, he, now we can actually start the episode. Uh, (laughs) so here's the thing. What's interesting is that, uh, Brian Singer has, has very much, first off the X-Men comics and the X-Men movies have always been, uh, about civil rights. Now, of course the comics were about, you know, uh, like the rights of, of blacks to live in harmony and not worry about getting hurt. Right. And then, uh, you know, with the nineties coming along and then certainly with Brian Singer, a gay director making the, the first two films, you got a lot of allegory there. And then it just, and then it got really obvious with, uh, X-Men first class where one of the kids says like, you didn't ask, so I didn't tell. And it's like, Oh right. yeah. All right. Okay. It's, we do have it by now, but that's fine. That's <laughs> fine. Um, when it comes to, you know, allegory, I'm, I'm more forgiving than most, I think. Um, but anyway, so now it's like the fact that he's doing that another X-Men movie is coming out. Right. And my guess is it's going to be, it's probably going to be chock full of allegory. 
And now it could look to some like, right. It's the gay like, agenda, like a pedophile saying, you know, uh, what is he accused of pedophilia? I forget. I don't know what the exact, because the kid was, I is. think underage, but he wasn't like a child. Right. Yeah. He was, I think 17. So I, I'm not sure what that would qualify you as. I don't know what the label would be. I guess it's statutory rape. Okay. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure what the legal definition of pedophilia is. Yeah. I, I thankfully I've never had to look it up. <laughs> um, but, um, but I feel like because it's not Brian's it's, this didn't come out before Jack, the giant slayer, mm-hmm. you know, um, right. this comes out in a, right before a movie that's going to have a lot of Brian singer in it. And so I feel like people, they might, if I could see them rebelling against the movie, if as a function of that and what this, and what this guy is and and what he has perhaps done. The very, I think maybe overly simplified way of saying what I think you're saying is that this could actually be bad for gay people in America. Uh, It could be. Yes. Yes. Because it could confirm some maybe, you know, already bigoted people's yeah. uh, suspicions. Yeah. And obviously I might be over. Again, he's not a public figure, really. He's not. Right. If I were to talk to my gauge is always my mom. If I were to say, hey, Brian Singer, and then give no in- indication of who that is. Right. He's accused of this. My mom would be like, oh, that's unfortunate. Is he local? Wh- who is that? <laughs> um so it might do absolutely nothing, but right. it is a one-two punch of this and then this guy imbuing a lot of himself into this. Here's the thing. We don't know if he did it or not. Right. Uh, and so this is all alleged, and so we'll see, how it, we'll see how it pans out. I don't like the idea of – one thing I was reluctant to, to talk uh, – one reason I was reluctant to talk about it in here is because I feel like the more people talk about it – and it's news. I get it. you know. And if he did right. it, then that's a, that's a terrible thing. But like the more people talk about it, the more uh, the more assumed guilty he is. Right. I think court of public opinion, and very all much so. Yeah. Um, incidentally, if you would like to uh, listen to an episode that isn't ours uh, about this, I recorded an episode of More Than One Lesson uh, a couple months ago. That about the Woody about, Allen thing. About well, it's it kicks off with that, but we talk about him, Polanski. We even go back as far as uh, Fatty Arbuckle. Okay, but you didn't so, talk about Brian Singer. We did not talk about Brian okay. Singer. I was going to say it was not. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, did you know something and you didn't? I might have leaked a little. I don't want the new X-Men movie to do well. I, and so I leaked <laughs> a little something to the press. All right. Um, so that's uh, that's what's on our mind today. Yeah. But that has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about. No. Uh, today. Um, but first, we should pay some bills real quick. So Absolutely. I want everyone to, uh, you know, uh, what about what do I usually say? Cuddle up real close to your tweaked audio dot com earbuds and if you don't have them here's how you uh join the cool crowd you go to tweakedaudio.com slash pretension and that is is your way into tweaked audio's uh vast uh selection of professional quality earbuds in a variety of styles and colors and by going through the slash pretension back door you get uh one third off and uh, no shipping charges is it possible to cuddle up to something that's in your ears I mean, yeah, if you're alone. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, okay. 
So here's the deal, everybody. Uh, this episode is brought to you by the Double Feature Podcast, which tackles two different movies each episode, talking about their themes and artistic merits. This week, the Double Feature is American Movie and Mean Creek, two movies that I really enjoy. Yeah, me too. In this episode, they talk about how first impressions, language, and appearance impact... Damn it, phone. Uh, impact your impression of someone's intelligence and whether or not Mark Borchardt is actually a good filmmaker. As they discuss Mean Creek, they address bullying and the morally correct position on the actions of the characters. To listen to this and other episodes, just go to doublefeatureshow.com or click on the ad at battleshippretension.com. And I will say, um, we tend not to engage with the product of our uh, sponsors because we don't want to put ourselves in the position of mm-hmm. lying if we don't like it. But uh, I was curious, and so I actually, at the gym the other day, I was listening to uh, their episode of uh, about... Uh, Mulholland Drive and the Adventures of Shark Boy and Lava Girl, and uh, I really, really enjoyed the show. Uh, I it is right up it is right up my alley. And if I would venture to say, if you are a fan of Battleship Pretension, you will enjoy uh, Double Feature. So check it out. Uh, I highly recommend it. All right, all right. Let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. It's you might you might have noticed um, the number on your MP3 player that starts because the way that we do the names of the episodes, we do a number. And then I usually do a period and then a space and then the title of the episode. That's how I usually do it. I mean, obviously, it's supplemental episodes and uh, premium episodes and the, the, they get different names. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the way that I normally do the standard episode, the standard b- Battleship Retention episode. I have completely zoned out. If you're following me. Well, this is what I'm trying to keep you from doing. I'm trying to be as as detailed as possible. So I'm going to say 95% of Battleship Retention episodes at least have the same naming convention. And that starts with a number. So I want you to look down at your MP3 player and notice the number at the beginning of this name, the episode's name. Um, it's part of the name. Mm-hmm. It's the first part of the name. And this number is You will three. notice this as you go to turn off that MP3 <laughs> player because you have had enough. <laughs> so this number is 370, uh, which the, uh, the, the smart crowd, the math geniuses, mm-hmm. Danica McKellar's in our audience... Uh, will know is divisible by 10, but not by 50, and therefore is a profile episode. You know, you know Dana McKe- Danica McKellar is really into math. I don't know who that is. Yes, you, Winnie from The Wonder Years. Oh, I, I don't know. Who has also played Josh Molina's character's sister on The West Wing. That I remember, yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, I did not remember like that was super into name. math. Okay. Anyway. Is she a mathlete? I don't know uh, what that means. I don't know, like... Is, I, that, I, is that the kind of thing you just say about yourself? Like, I think it was probably an like, actual school let's program. Say you're really into Jimmy Buffett, right? You call mm-hmm. yourself a parrot head, but you don't have to like, like pass a test to be called a parrot head, right? Right. So I'm saying, is math lead just like oh, I'm a guy who's really into math? I'm a math lead, or do you have to like have qualifications? I think it was an present? actual school program, and so I okay. think you could be enrolled so in that. In between, and, you can choose to enroll in it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But you have to have chosen to enroll in it to be called a math lead. I, I think so, but uh, but I'm not sure. But anyone can join. They just have to have joined. Uh, hang on. Say that again. Anyone can become a mathlete if yes. they join the club. But they can't call themselves a mathlete. Can you choose to join the mathlete club and, then, and will they turn you away? I guess it depends on the school. Like how yeah. how competitive is their mathlete program? <laughs> their mathletics program? <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea. Did you hear about this thing at uh, University of North Carolina where athletes were essentially getting credit for courses that didn't actually exist? It was a scandal. Really? Yeah. Um, I like the idea of 
a school like having such a good mathlete program that they're like getting checked off, getting A's in PE classes that they never attended. <laughs> and like their final exam is like a jumping jack, <laughs> but it goes down as full, full credit. Anyway, it's episode 370. It's a profile and we're doing Sean Connery because he's retired. It used to be our, I guess, rule yeah. early on that we would only profile people who had been, who had become deceased. Um, who had become death. Yeah. <laughs> uh, people who were no more. Mm. People who were ex-people. Yes. Um, anyway, uh, but the, but Sean Connery is retired and that's close enough. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Okay, so last week, uh, David and I, before we started recording, we went back and forth on who we were going to profile this week. And it was uh, getting very late. Yeah, and we were focusing, we were focusing primarily on actresses, right? Yeah, because I felt like we hadn't uh, done an actress in a while. Which is true. Uh, and was then, Catherine Deneuve the last actress we did? I'm sure it is, yes. And that was a, um, wow, you weren't even living here. Oh, well, that's true, yeah. Yeah, that was your old place. Yeah. And so, um, but what's interesting is, so it's like, okay, well, well, we'll think of something between last week and this week, and, and, and there we go. And then David texts me. During the episode. During the episode, you probably heard it, because we called attention to it. Uh, and because... Yeah. <laughs> And Tyler's uh, phone plays that song from Citizen Kane uh, whenever he gets a text message. <laughs> uh, and so... For the poor, you may be sure that he... Yeah, I, that's the song yeah, I'm talking about. Yeah. The, the, the there is a man. Yeah, a certain man. Yeah. Um, I'm just going through the... Now I'm going through the... singing the song Yeah, now I'm going through the... Well, I'm going specifically through the White Stripe song. Um, oh, I like... Uh, uh, I like the idea that you, you were at Cartman on South Park, couldn't hear the beginning of I'm Sailing Away without singing the rest of the song. I like the idea that I could do that to you. I could just start saying there's a man, and then you have to like, the boy, maybe sure I <laughs> But you five, you're not alive if you don't know his name. Um, so, uh, but what got me is that what struck me was as we were, th- we were thinking about actresses, how did you arrive at quite possibly the most masculine actor uh, in history, it was a combination of things. I okay. was thinking about, I th- I thought about the thing I talked about, like what if instead of a dead person, we mm-hmm. did a retired person. Okay, um, and then I happened to look up at your DVD collection. I saw the Molly Maguires, and I was mm-hmm. like, I've never seen the Molly Maguires. We should talk about it, and uh, that's okay. So it was as easy as that. Yeah. All right. Um, and you have seen the Molly Maguires, so we'll get to that in a little bit. Indeed. Um, but I want to start, did you, I, apparently he played a deckhand in A Night to Remember, but I never saw that. Nor did I. The old Titanic movie. The, yeah, I haven't seen anything before his, uh, his James Bond period. Okay. So. Have you? Yeah, um, I don't think so. Okay. No, I, apparently not, because I never saw The Longest Day either. I saw The, the Longest Yard. Which with one? Burt, with Burt Reynolds. Oh, okay. Of course. Is he in that? Um, Burt Reynolds is, is in that. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Um, all right, so let's just start with James Bond then. Okay. Um, so, and I've only seen one Sean Connery James Bond movie because I'm not a James Bond fan. Right. And that's maybe part of the reason I wanted to talk about this was to give myself another excuse to talk about why I don't like James Bond. Um, and why is that? Uh, and maybe this has something to do with what you were talking about, about Sean Connery being this picture of masculinity. Mm-hmm. But the James Bond ideal of masculinity has never been appealing or inspirational to me 
at all. I, I, I've never wanted to, I've never thought, uh, I, I literally have never thought I want to be like James Bond. It, like he seems, he always seemed a little mean. Yes, he was. He um, killed people, David. <laughs> but I mean, so does Jason Bourne and I, I, Jason Bourne's cool. But, uh, James Bond is, I, I find he's so, I guess, cool, not in like the James Dean way, but like literally like keeps a cool head mm-hmm. that it becomes boring to me. Let me ask you this. It's odd that you say this as much as I'm a fan of the Jason Bourne films and I am quite a bit. Um, I don't know who Jason Bourne is. Well, it's not, is that's, uh, yes, that's I know the idea. I think. Yeah. But how can you ever describe somebody like that as cool? He's capable and that is actually something that he shares with James Bond that I like quite a bit. Yeah, but I think um, I think J- J- James Bond is so trusting in his own capabilities that it's again boring. It takes the tension out of it. Whereas Jason Bourne has an air of like, I think this is going to work, and but I know that it might not. It is for these reasons that I do think you would like the the latter the latter uh, James Bond films because they do. You can tell there's a, a Bourne influence. The Bourne yeah. influence there uh but um but yeah Written by so, robert ludlum <laughs> you know the new like born books because robert ludlum is right yeah he doesn't exist anymore yeah, he's no more um it's <laughs> a very strange way of talking about death uh, well, i'm referencing the parrot sketch right yeah yeah okay he anyway. shuffled off this moral co- coil and gone to meet his maker yes um but robert ludlum like there are still books written by robert ludlum trademark because yeah. <laughs> there's like uh, people in a in an office somewhere like a, i imagine a bullpen of like typewriters clack, 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 and they're churning out born stories in the voice of robert ludlum i like to think that they've uploaded his consciousness onto a computer transcendent style yeah, yeah. or uh this isn't a spoiler uh, captain america winter soldier style um in in i would say the best best scene of the film um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know about that. So okay. So I will mention. I, I'm not a huge James Bond fan. I, I tend not to find them remarkably uh, intriguing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I usually watch them for the villains, um, just as I used to watch Batman movies uh, for the villains. Um, but so I want to start. Since we're okay, we're not talking about James Bond uh, in general. Uh, there probably should be a whole episode devoted to that at some point. You um, can have Kyle Anderson on. That's the plan. And uh, and then I'll you'll have to watch several to get ready for that. <laughs> or I'll um, just moderate the episode. Or how about this? We'll talk about James Bond, and then every 15 minutes we'll check in about your hockey scores or whatever. Yeah. And, it's the playoffs. Uh, and you can bore the hell out of me. So, um, Tyler, hashtag because it's the cup. That's the hashtag that oh, goes around. I don't like that at all. Because it's the cup. That's so why. here's the thing. As I was going through the filmography of Sean Connery, one thing that st- that stuck out to me is that he is he does not have a lot of range as an actor, but the kind of actor he is and his general on-screen persona is surprisingly malleable. He can seem like a number of different things. Mm-hmm. Like he can seem and though he did, he is a little he's a he, is a little brutish at times in the James Bond films. He's very, he is suave. He's very confident. He knows what he's doing. Uh, and, what, and he's, and he's like good with the ladies and he's, and he's quick with a quip, David. But what um, he's not that Jason Bourne is, is sensitive. I'm not arguing about the character now. I'm saying that this is what Sean Connery is able to 
but okay, and you're, but, you're but, absolutely but, right, but, by the but way. Sean, but like, but Sean Connery was the first James Bond on in film. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it was a book, you know. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think there was there's a TV. Uh, there was a TV Casino Royale, but I don't know if that was if that was made before Doctor No or not. Um, well, now I got to look that up. Okay. Anyway, um, so when I talk about the character, in some ways, I am talking about uh, the performance because he created the character as we know him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I say there's no sensitivity, a part of that is because that's how Sean Connery played him. Played him in. Admittedly, I did only I did only recently see free, uh, from Russia with love, which uh, is great. By the way, it's just a really good. It's like a general spy movie, but James Bond is in it. It's it's almost like. Um, did you ever see a shot in the dark? Um, yeah. Okay. Ar- arguably the best Inspector Clouseau movie based on a play that did not feature Inspector Clouseau. They just wedged him in there uh-huh. and it's great it's wonderful george sanders is in it being awesome as he always is um and so uh this from russia with love feels like that and as such james bond uh he makes emotional connections to characters uh to other characters and and i'm not sure if i would go so far as say he's sensitive but he does he's not even necessarily vulnerable but he's a bit more relatable emotionally. Uh, and so, for example, you know, there's he, he's not opposed to uh, killing for uh, vengeance for like you killed my friend and now you need to die, too. And stuff like that. Like he's not purely a function of of what he does for a living and, and the, the role that he plays. And so I feel like that's a thing that uh, Sean Connery who admittedly doesn't he doesn't show a lot of uh a lot of emotion really in 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 any of his performances but I feel like that it tends to work for the various characters he plays um but yeah and I think there's I think it's I think it's definitely uh worth discussing the idea that what James Bond was in everybody's mind even though several people have have played him is what Sean Connery brought to the role. You know, I find myself wondering if they had had Richard Burton play him, would James Bond have just seemed like, you know, the spy who came in from the cold or something like right. that, this melancholy kind of thing. And so I don't know. So it is, so it is definitely uh, worth noting, you know, and I think you're probably right that he probably just as much as the books, he defined how James Bond was going to be viewed. And then of course, I mean, Roger Moore played him and, and sort of the comedy came in a little bit more, but, but yeah. And, and then but it was still a riff on, yeah, it was always still that kind of thing. Of, and that, you know, well, first I want to say, um, casino Royale. So you know how they used to do live TV all the time. Yes. There was an anthology series called climax that would do different episodes. They did a live in 1954. Mm-hmm. They did a live adaptation of casino Royale, um, with Barry Nelson, playing i don't know who that is name uh, sounds familiar playing uh james bond and peter Lorre playing a character who i don't know if is in the named le chief yeah he's uh played by orson wells in the uh the 1960s and by mads mickelson and oh. the new casino royale well mads mickelson is the new peter Lorre. he kind of is yes um, 
Except- and if he and if he isn't, then uh, Matthew Almorick is, who yeah, was the villain goes. in uh, Quantum of Solace. Ah. Um. Anyway, but uh, so I want to get back to um this 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 James Bond that Sean Connery created mm-hmm. and my inability to relate to him. This is something that comes up on. This is the type of thing that comes up on. Hey, watch this, my TV podcast, all the time because mm-hmm. Paul and I are, you know, um, of essentially of different generations. Where mm-hmm. I mean, he's, I don't know, he's more than a decade older than I am. Uh, I think so. Um, is is my inability to relate to James Bond? Does it come from? Is it a generational thing? Is it that this is an idea of masculinity that? is hard for me to connect with. I think so. Yes. Um, but other people my age do like it. But yeah. I guess but things uh, aren't that fluid. There are still people who are opposed to mixed race marriages. So are, uh, are there? Oh yeah. I, I'm sure was, there it are. Came, it came up during the, uh, 2012 primaries, the Republican primaries, uh, in miss, I feel like I've talked about on the show before. Maybe I talked about it on, Hey, watch this, but, uh, in Mississippi and Alabama, like, like half the population black and white people are opposed to mixed race marriages. Okay. Well, that last bit of information is one I wasn't expecting. (laughs) Um, I just like the idea that everyone's there. It's like, Hey, just don't make waves. All right. (laughs) Just, uh, um, so no, but yeah, that's the thing is, is there are people that still think Frank Sinatra is the epitome of cool. And that's a very James Bond instinct, I think as well, you know, this womanizing, super cool, always with a drink in his hand kind of guy who can handle any situation. Like that is an old Frank Sinatra could sing, I guess. And James Bond can fight. And I, I I don't equate the two. Like I I don't, I don't cher I don't cherish, uh, you know, uh, a propensity for violence or, a. Or even a skill at violence. You you do if somebody is fighting for you, fighting for your for your country. Like if somebody is a professional soldier, then yes, and that, that's the thing. I, I, we keep coming back to James to to Jason Bourne. Mm-hmm. Um, Jason Bourne in the first movie when he um, when when Clive Owen is coming to the the farmhouse, the English countryside thing, yeah. and he snaps into action about like here's the shotgun, where's the shells, and that like the metaphor there of him protecting a very domestic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you might even say a mundane place uh, makes it much more relatable to me. Whereas James Bond, yes, he represents his country theoretically according to his paycheck, but he he doesn't feel like a patriot to me. He feels like someone who's out for himself. Well, that is a, there is a, an interesting. Um, Not that Jason Bourne is a patriot either, but he's fighting for something and he cares about people. And I don't feel like I don't feel like James Bond is spurred to action because innocent people might get hurt. I feel I, I feel like he has this. I, I, the idea of James Bond is like, what this guy thinks he's smarter than me or better than me or he can fight better than me. Like that's why. Like he's doing it for himself. That's the impression that I've always gotten with James Bond. And uh, oddly enough, uh, and and that, that's the thing. Again, I'm not a huge fan of James Bond movies, but I guess I'm much more willing to be like, yeah, I don't give a shit. <laughs> like he's on my side. That's a good thing. And. Here's the thing, as much as he, like, I'd rather him be selfish in defense of innocent people than the megalomaniacs that are selfish uh, in order to rule the world, and it's like, it's kind of a lesser of two evils. Now, I don't think that's the way I'm supposed to think of it. I think I'm supposed to think of it as like, this guy's kick-ass, and he's going to kill this, you know, this villain. Uh-huh. Like, I just think it was like, well, 
I guess you got to pick someone and I, and this guy's going to kill everyone and this guy's just going to kill that guy. Um, <laughs> and I have trouble with it. It's sort of, since hockey's on my mind, there's a thing fans always talk about like uh, a player who like plays nasty, you know, is the kind of, they say, Oh, that's the kind of guy you hate when he plays against your team, but you love him when he's on your team. Mm-hmm. And I've never agreed with that. Like as a blues fan, it's almost sacrilegious for me to say, I was never a fan of Chris Pronger, even though he's like, mm-hmm. uh, I really like blues fans love, Chris Chris Pronger and he did well for the team but I just never liked his style of play and I never mm-hmm. liked his attitude uh, and so I've never been able to be on board with that kind of line of thinking uh, I agree with you and uh, I won't get political so I'll just say from a political standpoint I very much agree with you even though a lot of people that uh, that seem to line up with me would not um, <clears throat> so we do need to we do need to move on but I think it I think we should spend I think it was right to spend some time on James Bond, since that is how a lot of people probably think of Sean Connery, is he, uh, I, I'm sure there are a number of people that when you say James Bond, that his is the image that they'll, that they'll think of. And yeah, I mean, that's probably true of me as well. But what's interesting moving on is, uh, and after Dr. No from Russia with love and Goldfinger, and by the way, I do think I do think everyone should see and would enjoy from Russia with love. The other two Goldfinger has its moments, particularly with, uh, with its villains. But, um, but Dr. Knows just, it's fine. It's a good way to just kick off a series and, and then it, things get better later. Have but, you ever, I don't know if he, this has ever been recorded and released anywhere. If I just saw him do it on stage, but Pat Oswalt talking about the theme, the, the James Bond theme mm-hmm. in Dr. No, about how, they already had the awesome, like, you know, doon, 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 yeah. doon, like they had the awesome theme, but they clearly didn't know what to do with it yet. So it's him like in his hotel room, unpacking his luggage. <laughs> <laughs> and it's this amazing theme. <laughs> that is a pretty kick-ass theme, but yeah, it's, it is. It, it really is. When I used to work at the Arclight, you know, they play a lot of like over mm-hmm. the lobby and concessions, they play movie music yeah. and the James Bond theme would come on sometimes. And I always liked it. John Barry. Um, and so, uh, gosh, I hope that's right. I think it is. Um, so aside from those, I haven't seen anything between those and the aforementioned Molly Maguire. Have you? Say, yeah, I like the idea of keeping this episode short. Fair enough. So, <laughs> so okay. So already we're we're into something else that Sean Connery not doing anything remarkably different externally, but worlds away from James Bond internally. You know. You mentioned that, you know, you have a problem with James Bond because he's he's insensitive, mm-hmm. which is one could venture to say that he just is a fairly unemotional person. That's one of the re- things that makes him kind of cool is that he's unflappable. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that's why people think he's cool. Yeah. And, but you know, like, I feel like, like, even, uh, I know we're supposed to be moving on, right? Yeah. But to get back to the idea of masculinity, I feel like even at the time... Because this is post James Dean, mm-hmm. you know, and Marlon Brando, which is a different idea of cool. That's, uh, I mean, you, uh, you, you called John, you called James Bond brutish, mm-hmm. uh, but the idea of cool then James Bond is or James Bond and James Dean is brooding, yeah. you know, and that's maybe this says more about just me as a person than my generation. I relate much more to that kind of cool. You know, oh, sure. to, to, to James Dean, who is, he's cool because he's so sensitive. Yeah. That, you know, he's, he's too sensitive. He's too, uh, too beautiful for this world. 
<laughs> as it were. Um, I mean, his characters. Yeah. I'm not saying that he deserved to die. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Thanks. I'm glad. I just want to make clear. Yeah. That's not what I'm saying. We, we've I mean, never actually stated an official Battleship Pretension <laughs> uh, view on this. So I'm glad that you stated that. So the official Battleship Pretension stance yeah. on James Dean's death is sad. Yeah. He yeah. did not deserve it. Right. <laughs> Against. Yeah. Um, anyway. Firmly uh, con. So... Uh, what I'm saying, I guess that's what I'm saying is, uh, uh, the conclusion I'm coming to, or just the next step of my thinking, and I'll keep bringing it back to James Bond mm-hmm. as we go on, and that'll annoy the shit out of me, yes, I'm sure. Will. But, uh, I mean, it, you know what, I don't know that's necessarily a bad thing to do, because you said that he's so tied to that role. Well, and that's... It, it, yeah. I, I imagine James Bond is going to keep coming up, and I hope that doesn't annoy you too much, because I think it's... Um, I'll do my best. It's how people think of him. And so it mm-hmm. probably doesn't hurt to bounce other characters off of this, uh, that character. Anyway, so what I'm saying is maybe it's less generational than I thought and more just about a diff- me, by, me being a different type of person. There's different types of cool people for everyone. I think so. And it's worth noting, by the way, that the characters that James Dean played were every bit as selfish as James Bond, which is to say just as self-centered. Right. Like he was brooding. He was brooding because he was very navel gazing and just deeply unhappy with where he was. And that's the thing. But they were young and immature. And I expect James Bond to be more of a man. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So what does that speak? What does that say for you and me that are now in our 30s and identify way more with James Dean than James Bond? Yeah. I guess that's, that's sad. Yeah. I don't know. We got to pick some different role models. Um, James Rebhorn. That's the James I'm going with. You know who I, you know what actor I like, like current male actor who exemplifies a type of, I guess, masculinity that I respond to is, uh, and now I'm drawing a blank on his name, Chris Messina. Is that his name from the mini project? Oh, sure. That guy's great. And I feel like the characters he plays, I'm like, yes, he's sensitive, but he's not a whiner. He's reliant, mm-hmm. but he's not brutish. He's assertive. I haven't seen him in enough things. Well, I'm a big fan of that of that guy. Um, all right, so we're making all okay. So the official stance of masculinity is for Battleship Pretension is Chris Messina. Yeah, uh, I'll have to watch more of his stuff. So Molly McGuire's. Uh, for those that don't know, it is the uh, the story of uh, it's a true story. Molly Gu- Molly McGuire's, which is an unfortunate title, but it is the it is the name of the. Oh, uh, you think I like it? It's Molly just I, I feel like people may not know what it. It's a title might throw people off then i think it's like the commitments it's about sure a, it's about a yeah. band it kind of has that quality to it but no it's this was a uh, uh irish immigrants in the uh in the 1800s um they uh they're working in you know uh coal mines and stuff in pennsylvania and they're being very much exploited by uh their employers and so there was a group of miners called the Molly Maguires, who uh, basically acted as, one could say, terrorists um, in that they would bomb mines and that sort of thing so that uh, as a way of intimidating uh, the the mine mining company, like, owners and stuff mm-hmm. to actually g- extend, you know, um, uh, benefits and such to, uh, to their miners. And so the story is, uh, has a uh, Richard Harris playing a Pinkerton detective whose job it is to uh, infiltrate the Molly Maguires, the head of which is, of course, Sean Connery. Now, 
Sean Connery, infinite, uh, you know, famously cannot change his accent, so mm-hmm. he doesn't sound Irish, of course. Nor does he sound Irish for his Oscar-winning role in The Untouchables. It's not the end of the world. Nor does he sound <laughs> Russian in Hunt for Red October. It's fine. So he he never he never doesn't sound like Sean Connery, but where uh, where James Bond was cool and calculated. The character from the Molly Maguires is boiling over with rage. You can see it in every scene. He is so angry and it's a righteous anger and he's so frustrated and you can tell like he's, he's doing what he feels like he can do, but he knows this is not going to make a lot of difference. And so there's an almost impotent rage to, to his character and it's so interesting because he still can be very charming. He can still seem very, very calm and that sort of thing. But you can just tell that the actor is imbuing this character with just a guy who a sense of helplessness and just the just the raging against the world. And I don't know. It's it's weird to see because, again, externally, no different internally, a world of different. like I don't think of James Bond at all. When I watch his character in the Molly Maguires, it was only a few years after he stopped playing James Bond. And again, he's I mean, he looks different. Uh, he's got a mustache and he's and he's, well, you know, covered in coal dust. It was actually before Diamonds Are Forever. Oh, OK. So so, so he's still doing James. The, Bond. Yeah, he's still doing the James Bond thing. Late. But um, but he's he's like miles away from that. And that that is an interesting quality. It's not unlike one of my favorite actors, Gene Hackman. You watch Gene Hackman. Also retired. Also retired, yes, unfortunately. Um, his last film, Welcome to Mooseports. Can't win them all. Uh, but, like, you watch you watch Royal Tenenbaums. Gene Hackman is not doing anything differently. Mm-hmm. I think he had more range than, than – has more range than uh, Sean Connery. But, like, he's not doing anything really that different. But he couldn't seem less like his character from Unforgiven or French right. Connection or whatever. And so it's just a – there is something amazing – about actors and the way that they can with almost just through sheer force of will and almost nothing else can just make you believe that they're this whole other character, even though we've seen them, we've seen externally, we've seen them many times before. It's, it's astounding. Anybody who hasn't seen the Molly McGuire, seek it out. It's a great performance by Connery, wonderful performance by Richard Harris and uh, a great uh, score by Henry Mancini and, be- I, I- and beautiful to look at. I've been wanting to see it since I actually, I think you paid me back, but I bought that. Do you remember? Yes. Because I was working on the Paramount a lot of the time and I could get a discount. Yes. And that was when I heard of it when you said, hey, I was like, I think I asked like any Paramount movies you're looking for on DVD. And you said, hey, I'll, you know, see if they have this one. And you told me about it and I've been meaning to watch it since then. And that was eight years ago. It's a, it's a great movie. I really love it. And so, okay. Uh, but the next one on my list is Murder on the Orient Express. Oh, not Zardoz. I have not seen. I did I, buy it. I did buy that for somebody as a joke once. Yeah, I've never seen it. Um, but uh, I actually heard it wasn't wasn't so bad. But so Murder on the Orient Express. Have you seen it? Uh, yes, but a long time ago, and the characters are kind of bleeding together for me. Fair enough, because there's so many of them. Uh, yes, there are. Uh, it is a Sydney Sydney Lumet film. Uh, it's kind of awesome that he chose to make this movie. Um. And so uh, it's based on an Agatha Christie book. As David said, there's a million characters. Each one 
has to sort of be like they blend together for you. But like the, the next time you watch it, you'll be like, oh, if anything, each character's too distinct. Right. Because each one has to seem different from the others. Um, and so. And here's the other thing about Sean Connery. And I'm going to I'm, I'm going to shift gears periodically. So he plays a colonel in in uh, Murder on the Orient Express. He kind of has a Tweety quality to him. Um, tweety with a D, not a T, uh, not like the bird. Um, right. Or someone who's on Twitter. Indeed. Is that what we're called now? Tweeties? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, like if you tweet a lot, like what's he like? Kind of tweety. He's a little tweety. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, 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 just during like, the Oscars though. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so he's playing this for, okay. First off, I recognize that in the seventies, I mean, he's in his forties by then. So not a, not an, not a young man, mm-hmm. but certainly not old, right? But he can play old and the character isn't like in his sixties or anything. But he he just has an air of authority. He seems like a military man. He seems like a man that you're like, that even if you were his same age, you're like, man, I look up to that guy. Just he seems like a grown up in every sense of the word. Even though he's a he's among other grown ups, like he seems like the oldest one, even though he isn't, because he just plays. Again, he's a colonel. He's used to having people under him and he just has that quality to him. And there's a nobility there. And, you know, he doesn't have a lot of screen time in that type of movie. There's only one character that gets screen time and that's, uh, Albert Finney. Wonderfully, wonderful is, uh, Poirot. Um, but, uh, but again, he's not doing anything that different. He's just, he just seems to be carrying himself differently. He just seems to. He just seems to under, maybe this is, maybe this is the issue. I say issue like it's a bad thing. While not having a lot of range, he seems to understand his characters to the extent that he's like, okay, I, I, I know where this guy's coming from. And then he plays him and you're like, he knows where this guy's like this, this character again, nothing like James Bond, nothing like the character of Molly Maguire's. Yeah. It's, first off everyone should see more murder on the orange express as well it's yeah. a lot of fun that, but it's it's another example of just seeing i don't know when you when you first mentioned sean connery my first i was like really it's like what what am i gonna say uh-huh. it's like yeah, he's uh he walks around with a scottish accent and he's yeah. a little intimidating uh, like yeah. that's what i thought i'd be saying every time but the more i thought about it i was like Man, he is—he's somehow the same yet different in yeah. almost every performance. And we'll get like—I feel like we're skipping some because I have seen there. There are a number of big movies that I, when I picked Sean Connery, I wasn't thinking about all the ones I hadn't seen. I've never seen The Man Who Would Be King. Neither have I. Um, which I think is supposed to be good. What's What's next? I've never seen A Bridge Too Far or The Great Train Robbery. Uh, next one for me is Robin and Marion. Okay. Oh, so I skipped over that. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Okay. He, okay. plays, he played Robin Hood. Yes. Uh, he plays Robin Hood after the events of Robin Hood. The character has gone off to the Crusades. Uh, I believe Richard Harris is in this one as well, playing uh, King Richard. Um, don't quote me on that, though. I think it is him. Um, and uh, King Richard basically just goes totally insane, and Robin Hood is like, okay, I think I'm out. So he goes back to Nottingham, and he sees uh, Maid Marian, played by Audrey Hepburn. Uh, he goes toe-to-toe with... Uh, Kind of. He, basically, Sheriff Nottingham is there, played by Robert Shaw, in a really great performance. Um, 
but everybody's older now and everybody's weather beaten and tired, especially Robin Hood, because he's been, you know, he's been at war and, and this is the first of the, of the films that I'm, that I'm looking at and that, that I've seen of his, this is the first instance of him really playing his age. Like I know that in murder on the Orient express, I said he seemed old, but that's just because he seemed regal and, you know, with authority this time he seems old and tired and just, just world weary until, but unless he's with Maid Marian and then you see like kind of that old, an old spark, there's tremendous chemistry between him and Audrey Hepburn. There's a lot of chemistry between him and Robert Shaw who their general attitude is like, uh, I guess we got to do this again. <laughs> it's a surprisingly funny movie at times. Oh, but Richard also, Lester directed it. Yeah. Oh, that, that whose who's name? Uh, not I know. His, I know his name, but like, what else has he done? I forget. A Hard Day's Night is the first. Oh, one okay. Comes to mind. Yeah. Um, he's done a bunch of stuff. Um, Superman three, Superman two. I guess he took it over from Richard Donner. Oh, that's yeah, right. Richard Donner. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's a really it's a really good movie. It's it's worth watching, especially if you you know. Robin Hood has been played a lot of different ways. Uh, and this is one that I really respond to because it's like, it's a much more humanistic, uh, Robin Hood. And it's one of the few instances in, again, in the movies that I've seen. Um, I guess there's some romance going on with murder on the Orient Express, but in this one, like there really is a genuine heart, you know, he's still, he's still kind of intimidating. Um, but you see how he is with, with Maid Marian and you see there's, you know, then you get to see kind of the the sort of the twinkle in the eye of of Sean Connery, and you see like just tremendous affection for this woman, um, as well as, but also, I don't know, it, almost like the idea of this is going to sound. I'm sorry, this is the only metaphor I can think of, like somebody who's been wandering through the desert and then finally gets like a cool drink of water. Like he's been at war, he's seen terrible things. And he gets really cynical about what he's doing. And then he comes back and sees her and he's, and he's happy again. And the two have it some nice back and forth. It's a really great movie. And I really like what he does with the character because it would have been easy to play that character. Admittedly, the script is, is also one that is, that has a certain tone to it, but like it would have, it would have been easy to play that character. Like, okay, I Robin hood. I got it. Right. Um, next for me is time bandits. Okay. I've been, I was wanting to talk about, go get him. Uh, I've King, been talking for far too long. King Agamemnon and, uh, the thing you said about uh, him understanding his character. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, King Ag- Agamemnon plays sort of a... Uh, he, his, his role toward the young protagonist is sort of uh, uh, paternal, sort of uh, for that brief time that he's there. Mm-hmm. But I like that Sean Connery understands and makes King Agamemnon understand that this boy is from a different time mm-hmm. and that they can't relate. Mm-hmm. And so... There's something that is caring about him, but also something that is, even though he might not mean it to be, something menacing about him as well. Yeah. At the same time, because there's this otherness to him, and he comes from a more brutal brutal time, uh, and, and I think he he plays all that without playing it. You know that the way that King Ag- Agamemnon is a soothing presence and an intimidating presence at the same time. Yeah. Uh, is really sharply played. Yeah, and that that idea of menace and just just a just a tension of not being used of the kid you know the the kid mm-hmm. or kids wait sorry kid and then the the bandits right. yeah um 
just not being used to the general vibe. And so, um, so the, you know, his character, his Agamemnon, Agamemnon, right? Agamemnon. Oh, jeez. Okay. I'm not going to try that again. I'm just going to say the king. Um, he, uh, yeah, he's like a benevolent guy. It's almost like he's the most benevolent king of a horrible time, but he's still of his time. And he, and if he's cautious of you, if he's wary of you, then like, oh, geez, I don't like that. Like, you don't, you certainly don't want to get on his bad side. And so, um, but can compare that to, incidentally, uh, Robin Hood shows up in uh, Time Bandits as well, uh-huh. uh, played by John Cleese. <laughs> Hilarious. I love it. Yeah. But like, that's one character. And then we get a surprisingly human performance from Sean Connery. Yeah. Who could have, you know, uh, who could have really overplayed it at times, but he doesn't like he's very, you're right. He's very paternalistic. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that part of that goes to Terry Gilliam as well. Not, you know, not wanting to make, I mean, he, the structure of time bandits would have let it lent itself to a version of sketch comedy. And if every yeah. scene had been like John Cleese's <laughs> Robin Hood, um, it would have been, that's what it would have been. Yeah. You know, because, I might've enjoyed it more. I don't love time <laughs> bandits, but oh, I do. Um, it was actually the, that it was the first DVD I ever bought. Um, interesting. I mean, I think I bought thin Line the same day. So they're both the first, and I think maybe four weddings and a funeral cause it was on sale. So I think those are like the first three DVDs I ever owned. Um, anyway, uh, but, uh, anyway, uh, they're not all like, um, like Robin Hood, uh, Terry Gilliam mixes in some realness and then gets the Ian Holm scene, which is sort of halfway in between yeah because it's very yeah. it's funny and cartoonish but also Which somehow makes it more disturbing to me yeah yeah do, do you know what i mean the, yeah it's one of the weirder parts of the movie yeah but i i love it all right what's yeah. next for you all right so so you're talking about paternalism here mm-hmm. and just seeming kind of like a, a father figure like for me from now on it's almost all that okay um so the next one for me is the untouchables oh we got a we got you you passed a, a huge one okay highlander but I never saw it. Oh, okay. Well, All right, here we go. You talked about how he um, never loses his, ac- his accent. Mm-hmm. His character in Highlander is named Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez. <laughs> He's a Spaniard who looks and talks like Sean Connery. <laughs> yeah. Um, Could they have added maybe more more Spanish sounding words to that, <laughs> just to really yeah. emphasize that he's not this? Um, anyway, uh, but again, I, I'm really l- latching on to a thing that you were saying about him understanding his character, but also I think understanding the movie that he's in. Mm-hmm. Cause I think Highlander is the perfect example of a movie. Like, so you have, there's all these different components that go into a movie, mm-hmm. you know, it's a collaborative effort. And like, like daredevil losing his sight and becoming more heightened in other ways. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a movie can still work. If one element is not very good and the others elevate themselves. Okay. So Highlander has a really stupid script. Like not, not just that it, the words are stupid, but the idea behind it is stupid. The whole logic of the Highlanders, like of the, of these immortal people, like it doesn't make any sense yeah. really, but, um, it's, it's very, uh, um, vibrantly made. It's uh, vibrantly constructed. It, it has a, a, lot, a great forward momentum and a great sense of spectacle. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very fun movie to look at. The villain is Clancy Brown. And correct? that's the thing that I'm saying is the other thing that it has going for it is it has, uh, I think a number of character actors or a couple of them, n- namely Sean Connery and Clancy Brown, yeah. who looks at the material and g- 
said to themselves, all right, I really got to bring something to this yeah. and really stepped it up and they're fantastic. And Christopher Lambert's fine too, I guess. I don't know. I'm not, he's, isn't he's, his he's char- the main character. Isn't but, his character Scottish? Uh, I don't know. I don't remember. It's What's his character's time. name? It's like McGregor or something like that. Oh right? yeah. It's Connor. Oh, hold on. Uh, fuck. I clicked on the wrong thing. Uh, oh, well. Um, but I think his character... <laughs> I think his character is yeah, Scottish. Connor yeah, Connor McLeod. That's it. Connor McLeod. I think his character is Scottish, played by, I believe, a Frenchman. Right. And then you have got the Spaniard, played by a Scotsman. Uh-huh. Who cast this, and when did they kill themselves? <laughs> Hopefully not uh, not long after. Well, it's a very fun movie, um, and uh, I know we should, I mean, he's still working, so we, but someday we should do a profile of Clancy Brown because he's got so many fun characters. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm a big Clancy Brown fan. Uh, anyway, so I guess that's all I wanted to say about okay. Highlanders. Another example of him, like, you know, I guess taking a look around at the landscape of the movie that he's in and the character he's playing and pitching his performance exactly to what it needs to be. And you know, one movie of his that I, uh, of Sean Connery's that I have not seen and wish that I had, if for no other reason than for this is the Avengers with Ray oh, right. Fiennes and Uma Thurman, in which he plays uh, the villain. And everything about that movie I've heard is terrible. But I, I get the feeling it's campy, that and it's meant to be campy. And so I like the idea of him playing a villain and playing kind of a campy villain, whose name is, I think is like August De Winter or something like that. Um, and incidentally, like he's got a he's gonna like control the earth's weather so his first name is a month and then his his last name is a uh is a season <laughs> which seems appropriate so um so okay but even then like he's the mentor in highlander correct yeah yeah right so like that's who he plays now yeah and he's the mentor in the untouchables so is that uh so neither one of us has seen the name of the rose because that's supposed to be a that's, good one. That's with Christian Slater, right? Yeah. I didn't see it. Kind of. I think it's kind of the movie that made Christian Slater, as I understand, from what I understand. Fair enough. Um, um, no, I haven't no, seen No, I it. didn't see that one, unfortunately. But uh, I, did see the, I did see The Untouchables. I only know... Sorry, you're okay. like trying to rush things along. You like being me today. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's wrap it up. Um, I got Denny's with somebody after this. Oh, okay. Uh, well, the, I, I always think of Trainspotting when I think of The Name of the Rose, because they're talking sick boy is talking about how sean connery lost it at a certain point ah um and only makes bad movies and um and sean connery says uh what about no sean connery sorry um you mcgregor says what about the name of the rose anyway it's not but not important he basically <laughs> says he got nominated for a bafta because it was a sympathy vote oh yes okay <laughs> that's what that's what sick boy says um okay on to the untouchables okay so i don't like that movie do you uh, man, when I was a kid and I saw it taped off TV with like, you know, some of the violence, uh, yeah. I think, removed. Because is it, is it an R-rated movie? I have no doubt. Um, yeah, I, I had seen it. And on- for no other reason, I could, I could see for language. Okay. Uh, yeah, rated R. So I had, I, I had taped it off TV when I was young and watched it all the time and loved it. And I think probably, probably early in college, I decided to watch it again, probably after I'd seen battleship potemkin yeah to watch the mostly i watched it again to watch the potemkin uh homage or yeah. ripoff however you want to characterize it i think, uh, I think it was an homage. yeah yeah um and uh, we yeah, should do an episode about that someday it's not good what about homage or ripoff yeah did we already do that yes we did okay <laughs> uh that's a good topic 
I've forgotten that we did it. We should probably just do it again. Fair enough. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, the point of my story is that I agree with you. The, the Untouchables is not a very good movie. Uh, I love the score by Ennio Morricone. I think some of it is gorgeous to look at, as one would assume, with a Brian De Palma film. Um, I think the script... You and I profiled David Mamet, and I remember being like, oh, this is not Mamet. This is not good Mamet. This is dumb yeah. Mamet, who is so focused on like how the lines sound that he forgets... To, he seemed to forget that, like, yeah, but you you should focus on what you're saying, too, because uh-huh. that's good. That's important. Um and there's some there's some fun stuff in there and uh man when I was younger okay so he won an Oscar for supporting actor for The Untouchables. Uh when I was younger and even kind of now I'm not bothered when somebody can't do an accent. Uh-huh. But if they win an Oscar, I'm looking at you Michael Caine Cider House Rules, when they win an Oscar for at least he was attempting an, an American accent. Like Sean Connery does not try at all. Um, that really doesn't bother me. I it's, tell you. It doesn't bother me most of the time, but for some reason when I was younger, I could not get over this idea. It's like he didn't, the character's name is Malone, Jimmy Malone. I believe I, uh-huh. he's specifically supposed to be an Irish cop, but he sounds completely Scottish. I'm like, how does that not, that not disqualify him? And that's the thing. Did it bother you in the grand Budapest hotel that no one uses an accent? No, I really liked that. It's one of the things yeah, I liked about it. Does, it doesn't really bother me. It, accents don't really bother me that much. Um, sometimes they can. It can be distracting if somebody is not doing a good one, um, or if it's inconsistent. Uh, like the, Michael Caine was in a movie called uh, Last Love, in which man, I, I just he's a he's a wonderful actor, but he cannot do an American accent. Like he yeah. winds up just sounding nasally. You want to know the worst accent I've ever heard? What's that? In a movie. I've talked about how I had to, for my old job, watch um, Witless Protection, starring Larry the Cable Guy. Mm -hmm. Peter Stormare is in that movie playing an Englishman. (laughs) So it's Peter Stormare, whose native language is not English, trying to do a heightened accent, like English accent. It just he just sounds insane, or like he's got like speech like, impediment or something. Yeah, like his teeth are stuck together somehow. <laughs> uh, it sounds very very strange. He recently just had oral surgery. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's not a thing that really bothers me, and especially that's the thing. So it used to bother me with the Untouchables uh, until I got a little older and came to understand that uh, the movie, by and large, is not that good. But Sean Connery is genuinely great in it. I mean, he he that character encompasses pretty much everything that we've talked about so far. There's the world weariness of Robin and Marion. There's a certain degree of calm and collected and cool from uh-huh. James Bond. There's the paternalism that we've seen right in, you know, Time Bandits and uh and Highlander apparently. Uh there's there's an air of author- of respectability and authority that you find in murder on- murder on the Orient Express, and there's the frustration of the Molly Maguires. Like this performance encompasses all of that, and and just and it's so interesting because the character really the character the the role of the mentor can be a very hard 
part to play and a hard part to write because really they're just there to be like, all right, you're doing it wrong. Now do it right. <laughs> um, but I think he, and I guess some of this can be put down to Mammoth's writing as well, that I think the character's written fairly well. But um, And it's always important that the mentor die. Like here, Star Wars, The Matrix. Yeah, yeah, The Matrix. <laughs> all right. Oh, son keep, of a bitch. Keep going. Is that a thing you and I agree on? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, all right. I wasn't sure if you were just intentionally pushing one of my buttons. Uh, maybe both. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Um, but... Uh, and, this, and yet somehow it doesn't bother me with Lord of the Rings. It does a little bit, but not much. It's magic. I, I guess, guess the so. Matrix is magic too. Whatever. Horse shit. Um, <laughs> so maybe, maybe it's the fact that Matrix Reloaded is not a good movie and Matrix Revolutions is even worse. I don't Whereas, hate Matrix Reloaded. Uh, I don't think it... I mean, this is not what we're talking about, but um, yeah, I don't think it works in terms of like you know, Aristotelian like story arc. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't work as a whole movie the way the matrix does. Mm-hmm. The matrix loaded is a collection of, uh, scenes that I think work very well on their own. Uh, um, that I would give you. Yes. Which I would not say about revolutions. <laughs> yeah. Revolutions that, is just a slog. That's just a mess. Um, but, uh, but yeah. And so with the untouchable, you mentioned that the character has to die. And so like, one thing about the character is that he's very no nonsense, but you can tell how excited he is that he's actually getting a chance to make a difference finally. Um, and so in his death scene, you know, uh, it looks like he's reaching for something and it, and it's, Oh, it's this, I don't remember what it is, but it's like a, a necklace or something that is a, a symbol of his faith or something like that. Right. It looks like he's reaching for that, but he makes clear like, I don't want, I don't care about that right now. <laughs> I'm trying to help you do what we agreed to do together. You know, and it's a, it's a really, it's a great, I really like that scene. And I like him just throughout because he just, he is the heart and soul and conscience and conscience of that film. Uh, we should move on okay. to the next one for me is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Me too, which is probably the first Sean Connery movie I ever saw. Um, that is probably the case from either that or Hunt for Red October. Uh, oh yeah, I, I can't wait to get to that. But um, uh, again, he's playing paternal figure um in last yeah. crusade but unlike these other things he's not warm or nurturing he's yeah. the opposite it's i mean i think the movie is kind of about indiana indy coming to terms with his with his bad dad <laughs> and that's essentially you know what's his name henry jones yeah um is he was not a good father and that's kind of what the movie is about and sort of making peace with that. Yeah. And just, and the character, um, <laughs> he doesn't even really make that much of an attempt to, to be a good father over in the film. Like, no, and that's, that's one that's of the things that I, it's, it's Indy's story about, yeah. uh, and it's a very sort of like, it seems like it's, I'm thinking about it now as a guy who has been in therapy for a couple of years. It seems <laughs> like uh, the kind of thing that a therapist would tell Indy, which is like, you can't make your dad realize you can't change your dad. Yeah. You have to come to a certain understanding and move on. And, and, I, and I, as much as I think Indiana Jones, or I think last crusade doesn't get a lot of respect. And in, in retrospect, I kind of understand why, but I thought it was amazing when I was a kid. And, uh, there's still a lot of things I like about it. Yeah. It's, uh, 
it's a film that a lot of my friends loved. Uh, it is my third favorite in the series. In fact, it goes in the or my it goes in the order. I so like. there, it's so it's the bottom one for you because there are the there are three movies and right. it's the last one. Right, it's the last. Yeah, that's the last, the last one. one. And Matrix and uh, Morpheus dies in the <laughs> right. Matrix. Yes. Um, but uh, so. Um, yeah, and I and that's interesting because the character is still kind of charming and he's not without his positive points, but you can actually be probably a you can have good things about you and that doesn't translate out to other elements of your life like being a a good father. Like he's a very good researcher, he's a very good I don't exactly remember what his character uh used to do was he was he a teacher was he a professor himself i don't remember but anyway this says professor so i guess he was okay professor so like he was very good at what at his work so good in fact that he was unable to uh be a good father to his son but at the same time he did pass something along to his son because now his son is as good as his father at this. And so I feel like it is a film in which Indiana Jones is recognizing like, yeah, my dad's not a good dad and and he's never going to be, but I can at least acknowledge the role that he has played in my life, positive yeah. and negative. You know, it'd be interesting if they ever made a fourth Indiana Jones movie. Right. Yeah. If Indy himself had a kid so that we could see, did he learn lessons? Was right. he, a, was he a better dad? Right. They should do that someday. I'd, I'd I'd see that movie. Yeah, it'd be neat to see Indiana Jones have a kid, and then they really deal with that because, like, he raised the kid, and we get right. a chance to that see that. You know, like hopefully they wouldn't sidestep it by having, you know, have a kid he doesn't know about and just completely avoid the issue. Yeah, that wouldn't be in keeping with the character. They not at all, not at all. So I don't think they would do it that way. Yeah. Um, all right, let's move on to the hunt for I October. I like these characters we're playing. The hunt for October is uh, uh, an amazing movie. That would I. That's one that I liked when I was probably not as young as when I liked Last Crusade, mm-hmm. but um, still fairly young to the point where, I mean, The Hunt for October has like, it has some gunplay toward the end, but it's not, it's like for, it was a weird movie for me to like as young as I did. Yeah. I, think, I, I feel like did, we talked about this on the podcast. I didn't like it when I was a okay. kid and I, and I kind of love it now. I, and that's one, yeah, and that's another one that I revisited in my college years and I was like, yep, this is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm still a huge fan. That, and that was in that period where John McTiernan could do no wrong. Yeah. You know, Predator, Die Hard, Hunt for October. Yeah. That's an, uh, that would, I mean, those are, were those the three in a row? Anyway. Um, and I think what, uh, the element that I like about uh, Marco Marco mm-hmm. Ramius is the character's name. Yeah. I, I know because I looked it up. I'm bad with character names. I never remember them. I remember James Bond. That one I remember. Fair enough. Uh, anyway, the thing about Marco that I don't think we've seen as much in a lot of the other roles we've talk, talked about, a lot of the characters that Sean Connery plays have a certain uh, cleverness or wiliness, but I think... Wily is a great word. Um, I think Marco is the first character that we've talked about today who is... He has all that, mm-hmm. but he is also just smart, smart. Yeah. You know, like intelligent, like yeah. thoughtful, I think. He's probably the most thoughtful character we've um, we've come across so far and, and maybe the least reactionary. Uh, right. Because this is a guy who has, um, you know, made a very, a very private, subtle, and long-term plan, yeah. you know, and is carrying it out. And he has the same confidence 
of the other Sean Connery, Sean Connery characters we talked about, but uh, in a much more reserved way uh, most of the time. I mean, yeah. Obviously, he's the captain of the ship. He can be assertive when he needs to be. Mm-hmm. But he, he seems like a man with more of an internal life than maybe the other characters. He's the kind of confident where he doesn't actually need to prove anything. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas other characters that he's played, and I think there's a function of the character, not a function of his performance. The other characters that he's played, like everything is everything is outside. Like it's like, look, see how confident I am as I as I lean this way in this suit holding this drink, you know, that sort of thing. Whereas this, yeah, it's, you're right. It's, he's a very internal character who's still very, he's very funny. He's got, you know, he's very witty, but you're right. You, he just exudes intelligence. And given that I have described, um, Sean Connery as a brutish type of actor, he, Uh who gives that impression and based on stories you hear about his personal life, apparently he's kind of that in, in, in real life too. Um, for him to exu- exuding intelligence uh, as an actor, not to imply that actors are dumb, but like if you're playing a character that's smarter than you uh-huh. and smart in a very specific kind of way, it's hard to do. And with this, like this guy's a possibly a military genius, a yeah. strategic genius, and that sort of thing. I will say, is screen- the smartest one in the room. The screenplay does cheat a little by making the other Russians on the sub largely kind of dumb fair enough. I, I think that uh, uh but that it doesn't bother me because it still sees the humanity in them yeah uh, sam, neill's, by, sam neill's character is it's one of my one of the saddest character deaths for me it ever. is yeah and yeah. his and his is a good that's the thing like the other russians on the sub yes are with the exception of sam neill but then he's also there with uh alec baldwin like right. three pretty smart guys i would say and so um and so for him to be the smartest one and the one that kind of outmaneuvers everybody in every sense of the word um i feel like that's it's worth noting and it is it is a surprisingly obviously his russian accent not great um but not that again not that it matters i'm bringing that up primarily as a joke but like it's i'd say it's maybe his most subtle performance um probably of of the things i'm looking at i'd say that we haven't gotten to highlander 2 yet now is that the is that the quickening quickening, okay got it got it all right, what's next for you? Next for me is just a little uh, cameo he has as uh, King Richard in Robin Hood, right. Prince of Thieves. Uh, his performance, it's fine. It's Sean Connery-like. It, what, what's worth noting, what I think is more worth noting is the fact that they're like, okay, we need, as King Richard, we need somebody that is the essence of stability, who the minute he walks on screen, we all feel like, ah, here's the authority. Right. Here's the the chaos of the sheriff, the chaos of, of the world we've seen previous to this. That's gone now because the king is back and right. he's played by Sean Connery. Like that's like that's how iconic he was, is that like just by having it be played by him, we all knew everything's going to be fine from now on. I agree. I haven't, so, I haven't seen that movie in a long time, but I do remember feeling that way. Yeah. What's next for you? Next for me is First Night, speaking of kings. Okay. So you, you didn't want to talk about the other movie from 1995, which is called Just Cause? <laughs> <laughs> I never saw it. It's not that I didn't want to talk about it. I just haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah, um, I never saw Just Cause. And you know what? And I haven't seen A Good Man in Africa. I haven't seen Just Just Cause, Just for Scuzz. Uh I haven't seen uh, uh, Medicine Man uh, movies that 
uh, were pretty pretty big for him in the nineties. Uh, so the next one for me is but First Night. Medicine Man was not a critically successful movie. No, right? I heard it was terrible. I think that was like one of the earliest movies I remember, even like as a kid, being aware of the fact that Medicine Man was thought of as a bomb. <laughs> Uh, also John McTiernan, by the way. Oh, yeah, well, he had a good run there. And um, then he had a bad run. Yeah, which lasted uh, right up to jail, apparently. Yeah. Okay, um, so yeah, it was, his first one was Pre- Nomads. I'm talking about John McTiernan. Okay. Then Predator, Die Hard, Hunt for October, all in a row. Then Medicine Man. Mm-hmm. Then Last Action Hero, which I like. I do, too. Then he came back for Die Hard with a Vengeance. Then 13th Warrior, which is a disaster. Yeah. Thomas Crown Affair, which is a snooze. I thought it was all right. I can't. St- I don't like. I don't like either version of Thomas Crown Affair. Fair enough. Um, Rollerball. I never saw the remake. Um, yeah, John McTiernan has remade two Norman Jewison films. Isn't that interesting? Thomas Crown Affair and Rollerball. Rollerball. That's on Rollerball. Yeah. That's what I. <laughs> yeah, <it> sounds delicious. <laughs> and then uh, his last one was Basic, which is uh, preposterous. Basic. It's the Rashomon movie that takes place at basic training. Yeah. Do you ever have this where you just forget movies exist? Yeah. Like movies that you were very aware of at the time. And I was and, aware and of basic. Seen. I saw I, basic. Oh, I have not seen it. But like. Yeah. You know what I was just thinking about today? What's that? Crazy Beautiful. Starring Kirsten Dunst. Oh, yes. I saw your I saw your tweet and I enjoyed it. <laughs> um, but yeah. So uh, so I'll jump to uh, first night. Um, I'm a, I, I'm fascinated by uh, King Arthur. I actually took when we when you and I went to uh Southwest Missouri State. I took a, an Arthurian myth class, which was great. I really enjoyed it. And we watched and we read uh, the Once and Future King, which was uh, which is a really really interesting book and kind of the kind of the gold standard when it comes to uh, uh, Arthur and Lancelot and Guinevere and stuff like that. Are you frustrated that you took that class before Antoine Fuqua's King Arthur came out? <laughs> I am, yes. <laughs> or do you um, feel like you were able to bring something to that movie because... Well, I saw the director's cut, which is when I saw which it. is spot on. <laughs> Being sarcastic, of course. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, that, they, movie's, that movie's... It's... I it's, didn't hate it, but I only saw the director's cut, which is more violent. Yeah, that's um, the only one I saw. Um, but... But it's nothing. It's nothing. It's a nothing movie. The idea behind it is interesting to me that they're saying that that they're saying, oh, historically, the legend of King Arthur is actually based on, you know, pre Dark Ages from the Roman times. It's yes. based on this. And we're going to make this movie that's set then and tells the real origin of where these legends came from. Yes. Very interesting idea. And then it kind of becomes rote uh, and yeah. does not explore any of the interesting things about that. I did like the way they interpreted Merlin. But um which is uh, Stephen Delane, I believe, right? Oh, it's been a while. I like him. But um but yeah, it's uh yeah, that movie, man. It basically uh, that's a neat idea. I agree with that. That's a neat idea. Uh-huh. Kind of. But what they essentially are doing like, all right. But uh, here's how they executed it. It's like, all right. King Arthur. Everyone likes King Arthur. Now here's what we're going to do. We're going to strip away everything that people like about King Arthur and basically just leave the names. What do you think? Um, and make just another freaking like a more violent gladiator and, and that kind of, it just seemed to kind of have that vibe to it. But, uh, but first night, it's not that great of a movie. Um, but he plays King Arthur, uh, Connery plays King Arthur in it. And 
John Borman's Excalibur actually does a pretty good job of showing like just how deeply flawed all of the characters from like the Knights of the Round Table and stuff are. Like it's really fascinating. Um, that is a that is a very dark and cynical movie, and I really recommend it. It's 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 fun. Um, First Night, I mean, it's it's practically a romance novel. I mean, you know, and while there is a love triangle, like Arthur uh, has moments of jealousy, but ultimately is a very understanding man and that sort of thing. And so he understands that his wife is younger and she's probably going to want to be with Lance a lot and all that. It just uh, it's it's frustrating. Um, I don't blame Sean Connery for that. It's just the movie that he's in. He does have the. He does have the authority. I believe that he's a king and I believe that he's a king that people will fall in line behind and die for and all that. And, and and contrarily a king that would also die for his own subjects and that sort of thing. So there's a, you know, there's a lot, he does a lot of good in that movie, but the movie ultimately is, is whatever, who cares? Um, we can move on. Okay. Um, I never saw Dragonheart. I did. Okay. <laughs> and uh and it, you know what? The movie is is interesting. Um and uh probably its biggest uh contribution to the world of film is uh, a piece of music that we actually incorporated into our uh into our uh, right. BP's uh award ceremony. That's right. Um took me a long that was the piece of music I had in mind for that. It took me a long time to figure out where it was from. Uh, and uh, I did not guess Dragonheart early on. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, that movie, it's it's that movie's actually a lot of fun. And he plays, I think the character's name is Draco. He's the, the last dragon. And. And the character is is funny and he's, of course, menacing, but he's also very sad when you're the last of something. I assume you're very you'd be very sad. And there is a tragedy to that character. Like he he knows that like I mean, he he kills to protect himself, but he knows like, well, there's a fatalism to the character that I think comes through. And of course, it's a primarily vocal. It's a solely vocal performance. And so um, and I think that comes through. Uh, in his in Connery's performance, and so it's a movie that I enjoy. David Thewlis makes a great villain, as one would assume, and uh, and Dennis Quaid is a fun uh, shaggy dog kind of hero. So uh, Dragonheart's fun, and with some really good visual effects as well. All right, so now we come to I would venture to say my least favorite Sean Connery character. The performance is fine, but uh, that is. Michael Bay's The Rock. Um, yeah, I'm not a fan. Okay. Go on. There, I have things to say about it, but I want to... There are things I like first. about The Rock. Specifically, I like Ed Harris's villain and, and that sort of thing. I think... And there's a scene between, like, uh, Marines and Navy SEALs with uh, Michael Bean versus Ed Harris uh, that actually is very effective, I thought. But by and large, the movie sucks. Um, and... If only, it's it is be, it's it's one of Michael Bay's better films, but I say that only when you compare his his other films to it. Um, compared to other great action movies, it's nothing. It's you know again, who gives a shit? There's a couple of iconic images, but uh, the thing I don't know if I would even agree with that. Uh, I have a very I have a very specific image of again. It's kind of a silhouette image of Nicolas Cage 
holding those uh, gas things uh, as yeah. planes go over him. It's I feel I feel like it's it, an image that's stuck in my head, and so I feel like as a result, you say the Rock, I will think of that image. Yeah, but I, I guess I, I I bristle against you, you calling it iconic because it feels so self conscious, self consciously <laughs> trying to be that. Well, you know, yeah, that's true. It it feels like almost reverse engineered. Like, yeah, I guess you know what? I guess maybe I'm using the term wrong. Um, there are iconic. I feel like it's it's something that has become an icon of that term. I think can be used to describe something that has become an icon of film in general. Uh, and The Rock is not that, obviously. Um, but within itself, it has some some uh, you know self conscious uh, imagery and framing and that sort of thing. But it's still effective in the world of the movie. I still don't respond to the movie well, but it has its moments. And so, uh, but Sean Connery, the one thing that I, okay, again, I have a hard time divorcing him from the character. What I do like is that the character is crazy for the most part. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, because the script is bad, it makes him sane when they need him to be. um, And that bothers me. But, Sean Connery does play the insanity very well. And just this, and just a lot of aggression. Like this is a guy who has been not necessarily wronged, but like he's been away from people for a very long time and he has no love for anybody really. Um, and so his aggression towards Nicholas cage, he sells it, but I don't like, I don't like it because the, ter- the tone as offensive as you may find James Bond to be, uh-huh. we can, and any number of people our age can probably quote, I'm going to do it now, and I'm sorry. I can't help but do it in a, in a Sean Connery voice. Okay. Like, Your best. Losers always whine about their best. Winners go home and fuck the prom queen. Yeah, which is so stupid. So stupid. I don't even know if they had the prom in Scotland <laughs> in the early 1950s when he... I don't know if that's a thing. I'm sure he was aware of the American prom. Uh, I, I hate that so much. Sorry, um, that's a terrible Sean Connery, by the way. Uh, that's all I... It's... Uh, all anyone except Sean Connery does is a terrible Sean Connery. Fair enough. Um, that's, my, that's my point of view. Here's what I don't like about that character. Is that... Uh, they So they need him to be a former prisoner, right? Mm-hmm. But they make him a political prisoner, a political activist. Yeah. Or, and, and yet there's none of that... When he gets out of prison, you don't get any sense of that this is a guy who fought for things that he thought were right or had these these deeply held uh beliefs right um th- these philosophical tenets that he was willing to go to jail for decades for you don't get any of that he just he's just a crazy violent person well and that's the thing is you can there's a lot of potential with that character i'll say that that is unrealized of course um and the idea of this guy who went to jail for these principles and then being in jail at that time, he's like, there's nothing worth this. Like, just losing them, that would be neat. And and then kind of losing your mind as a result of, like, nothing I did means anything, and now I'm stuck here, and screw me and screw everyone. That's a character I'd watch. That sounds like fun, and a character he could have played, you know, going back to that world weariness we were talking about. And just, but this, like, the the character is whatever the script wants him to be, and Sean Connery is very obliging, he delivers the like the the lines that are cool. He delivers them cool. The lines that are crazy. He delivers them crazy. I don't blame him. I think he's doing what he's supposed to do. 
I think he probably, I don't know. It, it, do you think I'm crazy for thinking that he could have maybe done more to pull the character together and make him consistent? Well, we've, I don't know what you can, like that prom queen line. I don't know what you can do to make that work. And I think, um, I'll always jump in any chance to bash Michael Bay. All right. I think, um, we've talked a lot about Sean Connery's ability to survey sort of the landscape of the film he's in and figure out what his character, who his character is and, 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 uh, and then play him. Uh, I'll use the term again to play him at the right pitch mm-hmm. for that. I don't think that I, I, I feel like Sean Connery might've been a bit at a loss in the rock because I don't think Michael Bay understands quite what his film is or what the world of his film is or character. Yeah. I mean, uh, Michael Bay is more interested in, uh, engineering these moments yeah uh and these images um and doesn't seem to care that much about how he gets there so Mm -hmm. i mean there there are good things there are good parts of the rock but it's not a good movie right and it's not a it doesn't feel whole um and uh maybe that's why sean connery was unable to latch on to anything deeper yeah yeah. Whereas, you know, whereas I feel like Nicolas Cage was ma- managed to make his character consistent because he's like, all right, I'm just going to lean into it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't think that was the beginning of crazy Nicolas Cage, but I think you see a lot of them there. Um, all right. So uh, between The Rock and Finding Forrester, which is the next one for me, there were a few movies that I didn't see. And didn't um, care to personally. Like Entrapment. I didn't see that. I didn't see The Avengers. What else is there? Playing by Heart. Playing by. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's which it. was a small film. Uh, yeah, his, his filmography is not huge. I mean, it is oddly enough. He did a lot of acting before James Bond. Yeah, he showed up in a lot of stuff. Um, but uh, but yeah, so the next one for me is Finding Forrester, uh, which is also the final one for me because I never saw LXG. Oh, I did. <laughs> I won't have much to say about it. Okay. Um, I don't have much to say about Finding Forrester either. It's um. Well, I mean, first it, off, it epitomizes it, forgettability to me. Like I saw the movie. I oh, don't yeah. remember anything but the broad strokes. Yeah. I have a lot of associations with that film. First off, I have the association that everybody does, which is of course, you're the man now dog, right? Which, uh, I will not sully that line by trying to do it. in the Sean Connery voice, yeah. um, how much do you think his decision to retire from acting had to do with the fact that he had to say that line? Like he, he coasted along for a few more years after that. Yeah. I think that was really the death knell. That was when he was like, oh, this, this is what's ahead of me. Yeah. It's like, so this is my legacy. <laughs> well, maybe I'll just retire. I could kill myself, but I guess I'll just retire. Um, yeah. Uh, finding Forrester is not, uh, yeah, it's, it's a fairly forgettable movie. Um, but he is very good in it. Even even a line like that, which of course I hate, uh-huh. uh, and and it's that sentiment that shows up in movies from time to time, where you have an older character embracing a young phrase, uh, and I hate that. I hate that instinct. I think it's mm-hmm. terrible. I think one actor in a hundred can pull it off. I think he pulls it off as well as a person can. Um, but uh, that aside. Uh, any good in that movie is a function of his performance. And, and I, at this and, point I feel like I'm going to be repeating myself. And Gus like, Van Sant's competence. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, I don't think that Gus Van Sant is 
testing himself in a lot of ways here. The way, I mean, he would go from this to making Jerry just a couple of years later. Yeah, an elephant. Um, yeah, which I have different problems with. Uh, but I love Jerry. Um, but uh, it's it's kind of clear that Gus Van Sant is just an incredibly capable director. Yes, very much so. Yeah, it's interesting. There are like two Gus Van Sants out there. There's Goodwill Hunting, Finding Forrester, Gus Van Sant, and then there's Jerry Elephant, Gus Van Sant. Right. And then last maybe days. there's maybe the, yeah, Last Days is a great example. And then there's like a third one that just remade Psycho, which is <laughs> well, Psycho. I think that's more the crazy experimental Gus Van. Sant. Yeah, no, it's I I kind of love that he did it because yeah. it it is truly it's an experiment in every set in every sense yeah. of the word. I think I don't. Uh, Roger Ebert said something along the lines of like he remade Psycho so that no one else would. Yeah, I think that was I think that was maybe I think he might be quoting Gus Van Sant when he says that. But oh, okay. um, but what I will say is that um, but yeah, Sean Connery. Like, I'll be repeating a lot of what I've said so far. Like, he certainly has that paternalism as well, but also just a genuine this type of character. They start out as grumpy and curmudgeons and that sort of thing and just with no patience for people but then their their heart softens and blah blah blah. this character is no different but if you get the right actor in there then the curmudgeonly thing you buy it because there are plenty of movies where you watch that and you're like okay it's i'm not buying this person is actually a misanthrope um but he does sell it i like he is a genuine asshole to the kid uh, at the beginning. Um, and he is like mean and genuinely insulting. Now, part of that, part of that is the, is the function of function of the script, but he commits to it. He's not, he's not winking. He's not playing the end of the movie at the beginning. He's not trying to sow seeds of possible redemption early on. He's just being what the character is. And then when the character does inevitably soften up, I feel like he earns he earns that a little bit because um, in the same way that like the best depictions of Ebenezer Scrooge, like he's a real son of a bitch at the beginning, as opposed to kind of a, he's just kind of angry and that's it. And then he's happy. Um, This feels like, like a a truly committed performance in a movie that, like you said, is just, is just average, but, but it's a good performance. I'm not sure if, if I'd recommend the movie for it, especially when there are other performances of his, that I would definitely recommend the movie for. Um, but it's, it is a, it is a very good performance and it is the core of that film. Certainly. So the last one for me is the league of extraordinary gentlemen. It's not or a good, LXG LXG as I like to call it. Um, I mean, as it's known as it's commonly, look, we all know I mean, I think when it showed up on the AFI top 100 list, they just called it LXG. LXG. Yeah. 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 Um, it's like D two, uh, the mighty ducks. Right. <laughs> so, um, the director of blade, I didn't realize that. Yeah, that movie is uh, that movie is not good, but and he pl- and he plays a, a a character that unfortunately has been forgotten, but was a big deal, which is uh, Alan Quatermain, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, uh, and it's unfortunate because you've read the graphic novel as well. Uh, no, not uh, I've uh, I've paged through it. No, okay. I would say I've not read it. Uh, the character of Alan Quatermain is actually very interesting in the graphic novel. And I wish that they had depicted him like that in the film, which is like weak and a drug addict. Um, but is also fairly, you know, uh, not, he can, 
I think he can be killed, but he's mostly immortal, um, or at least just extremely old. And if they had, I would have liked the idea of a kind of an old withered kind of pathetic Sean Connery. I thought that would have been interesting. And I think he would have played, could have played it and it would have been interesting to see, but as it is, he winds up just being kind of the, the solid center of, of this film. Like he's the person that, that pulls all these people together. Um, and they, again, they not unlike his, king richard or king arthur or something like that people are willing to line up behind him but he's also willing he also has to spout off to these this disparate bunch of people and say okay enough your bullshit that you know we have a thing to do so the movie sucks by and large and uh and the performances is functional and effective but certainly it's not his best work and then i haven't seen anything since then unfortunately he hasn't he hasn't done a lot since then but um since then there has been oh shit i just had it up all right i hate when i do this uh makes us look unprofessional so he did it he would uh, in a documentary he did the voice of john muir um mm. he is credited with james bond's voice on a video game but it was probably taken from older stuff mm. and then something called sir billy yeah i noticed that earlier and that's for this year right no 2012 2012 i'm Two sorry uh, I don't know what the, uh, maybe it's a voice thing. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, I know he's. I but, know he's certainly getting on in years, and I think he, he is officially retired, right? Uh, yeah. But the last thing I remember seeing him do was present at the Academy Awards. I'm not sure what year this would have been, like 2007, maybe. Uh, after he was retired, he presented at the Academy Awards. Okay. And it was the year uh, where they had the presenters. When they were present the the category, they were sort of on little like raised pedal like they they go, go up a few steps. Mm-hmm. Above, I don't know if you remember this. I don't. Um, they weren't just like walking out to a stand. They had little like raised areas for them to be in. And Sean Connery, I almost said Sean Penn. Sean Connery comes like bounding out from backstage, and even ta- I think takes these little stairs like two at a time. Up to the my almost like he's proving like no I didn't retire because I'm old and weak yeah I'm still like almost like he had something to prove and I really enjoyed it he like hmm. was so full of full of life well yeah. if only he'd known that he that you at the Oscars you if you want to prove that you're not old and withered you can always just do one armed push ups right. like Jack Palance did. right um but yeah so, so he, he's 83 now by the way Sean okay Connery. and so so to sum up Sean Connery is. And I'll I'll say I'll basically just re- repeat what I said at the beginning. He's just he's an actor that was always dependable. Uh, you always kn- I feel like you always knew what you were going to get. Certainly as far as like mannerisms and and delivery, but and accent and sand accent, yes. Um, but you also you also knew that you were going to get a committed, surprisingly sensitive performance. By which I mean sensitive to the needs of the character. If a character is insensitive, then he'll be that. Um, And uh, all while playing things kind of under the surface. It could be anger, like in the Molly Maguires. It could be extreme intelligence, like in Hunt for Red October. Um, It could be, you know, sadness, like in Robin and Marion. Like, it could be any, any of these things, but it's always... He doesn't telegraph. And I think that's... It's interesting because... You know, as much as we talk about like uh, James Bond and his performance of James Bond sort of seeming like from another era, you know, 
if it were truly from an earlier era, he would be very much telegraphing it. He'd be really putting it out there. But as it is, it's surprisingly he's a surprisingly subtle actor that I think enabled him to play roles past a certain point, you know. Um but uh like for like a like, you know, I love Jimmy Stewart. Uh-huh. I love Cary Grant, you know, but after a certain point in their career, in their lives, they didn't really act. And I think part of the reason might be, in my opinion, because the style of Hollywood, the style of acting in Hollywood had just passed them by. I love their acting style. Well, I think Jimmy Stewart is a guy who, like Sean Connery, like intentionally retired. You think so? Yeah. When he, he, he um, sort of became... Uh, what was he in the air force or, or something like he became more about that. Hmm. And like the last thing he ever appeared in was a documentary about fighter pilots or something. That's and neat. he insisted that he, that the, um, you know, the credit and like the, his name at the bottom of the screen when he came on, not say Jimmy Stewart, but say captain James Stewart oh, or that's whatever. Neat. Um, because he was about his military service. Yeah, that's my. Uh, the, I have no. I have no way of, of proving this. I guess I'm also thinking about Gregory Peck, who actually did act um, in yeah. later years, but didn't get a lot of work. But not necessarily because he didn't want to act anymore. Um, but of course, he had a very old style of delivery that could work in certain movies. You know, he was in the Moby Dick remake in 1999 as Father Mapple, and it's like, okay, now we're that makes sense. Right. Um, and this is not too crap on that acting style i love it i absolutely love it um but it was very much of his of its era whereas i think somebody like a sean connery could go inside enough that he could and he was and like i said he was pretty malleable yeah he could act in any decade and be relatable i think well now i'm dying to watch uh the hunt for october again yeah in quite a while uh so this is fun uh, this is one of our shorter uh, profile episodes, at least since early on. Still, almost two hours. Yeah, fine with me. I gotta, I gotta go to Denny's. Oh, you got a Denny's date? Yeah. All right. Um, so you can find us at battleshipretention.com. That's where this podcast is. All the other podcasts in the BP fleet, and, and as also all of our reviews. This past weekend, um, we had reviews. Tyler reviewed Bears, Disney Nature's Bears. Yep. I reviewed Fading Gigolo, which is the movie where Woody Allen plays a pimp and John Turturro plays his uh, gigolo. Uh, all, all true uh, and i reviewed um ridiculous dance movie make your move uh which is ridiculous yeah and uh yeah oh also there's a review of the final member that documentary that sounds fantastic yeah that i really want to see um review of caesar's last fast another documentary um about about caesar chavez uh, all that's up this week, as well as all kinds of other stuff. Um, so you can find that at battleshipretention.com. You can email us, david at com or tyler at com. You can follow me on Twitter at The Pretension. You can follow Tyler at More Lessons. That's the official Twitter of his, of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which is at morethanonelesson.com. What's going on? Well, um, the most recent episode is uh, about the Christian film God's Not Dead. Now, I right. know that you in the past have shown enthusiasm at hearing me talk about Christian film uh-huh. because I tend to be uh, negative. Let's just say that say negative. I, I say you calls them like you sees them. That's how I describe it. Yeah, th- I agree. Yeah. And I, and we, You're and a straight shooter. Yeah. Josh and I tried to be, uh, 
as charitable as possible. There are good things in the film. Um, but nonetheless, it's, it's a, and it, incidentally, the companion film for God's not dead was Oliver Stone's JFK. All right. So enjoy that. That's at more than one lesson.com. Okay. And, um, my other podcast is, Hey, watch this with Paul and David, except I'm taking a two week break. So I don't know what, I don't know what's going on this week. It's Paul and somebody else, uh, for two weeks. <laughs> Because I'll be at WonderCon, and then I'll be in Boise, Idaho the next weekend. Hmm. Um, so I'm taking two weeks off. And that's that. So uh, thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 